Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Jack Scanlon with Lateral Magazine and John August with Entropy and the Egg. But first up, here's the news. Weirdly waving stars, five huge wave-like arches travelling at between 4 and 10 kilometres per second, have been seen on one side of the dust disk around the star AU Microscopii, which is just over 32 light-years away from our solar system. The further these arches are from the star, the faster they're travelling. Could they be accelerating? Three of the arches are moving fast enough that they'll escape the star's gravity and launch into space. Nothing like this has ever been seen before. The arches were spotted with the SPHERE planet finder instrument at the Very Large Telescope operated by the European Southern Observatory at the Atacama Desert of northern Chile. SPHERE is an acronym for the Spectropolyrometric High Contrast Exoplanet Research Instrument. AU Microscopii is a young, nearby star surrounded by a large disk of dust, which means it might have its own planets. Planets are traditionally found by looking for changes in the brightness in the star's light that might be caused by the shadows of planets orbiting around the star. However, Sphere takes direct images of the objects orbiting the stars. Planets are believed to form in the disks of dust and gas around young stars. Five wave-like arches at different distances from the star show up in the new images from Sphere, reminiscent of ripples in water. They show up within 10 and 60 astronomical units, where one astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Earlier observations made with the Hubble Space Telescope over four years show the previous positions of the structures, so that their movement could be tracked. They're found to be moving at around 40,000 kilometres per hour. Astronomers have been able to rule out most likely explanations for the five anomalous giant thingies. The travelling wave-like structures are not planets because of their speed. They're not caused by the collision of two massive asteroid-like objects releasing large amounts of dust and spiral waves triggered by instabilities in the system's gravity. Again, because they're moving too fast. AU Microscopii is a star that flares very often. It may be that some very energetic flares have stripped a planet of some material, and this matter is now being flung as a series of giant waves through the disk of dust. However, Once again, astronomers find it hard to believe that this would cause the fantastic speed of these objects. Sphere is only in its first year of observations, so we may expect many more surprises to come. For now, we don't know what the five giant structures are, and at 40,000 kilometres per hour, they'll have started to leave the dust disk of AU Microscopii within 64 years by my calculations. Astronomers using Sphere and other telescopes will continue to watch and look for explanations. Their paper was published in the journal Nature and was titled Fast Moving Structures in the Debris Disk Around AU Microscopii. 
old stars can have anomalies too. Strange flickering observed by the orbiting Kepler Space Observatory while searching for Earth-like planets suggests clusters of moving objects are orbiting the star KIC 8462852, located in the constellation Cygnus, approximately 1500 light-years away from the solar system. Anywhere from a fraction of a percent of the light, up to 20% of the light from KIC 8462852 has been blocked by things orbiting the star. 20% is a larger shadow than what we expect from even the biggest super-Jupiter planets. So the dimming of the light doesn't match the profile of planets. So instead, the best explanation may be a truly large number of exocomets. Comets around another star. If correct, these would be the first comets detected around another star. Just like exoplanets are planets around another star. The discovery was made with the help of citizen scientists, who examined images made public on the Planet Hunters website. Members of the public examining the images alerted the astronomers that something weird was happening at KIC 8462852. Their paper was titled Planet Hunters X, KIC 8462852. Where's the flux? Published on the Cornell University Archive.org online archive for scientific documents, where archive is spelled A-R-X-I-V. Some astronomers have speculated that instead of exocomets, the dimming and flickering is caused by giant structures built by an alien civilization, and have started to sweep the star for signs of intelligent life using the Allen Telescope Array, a system of radio dishes almost 500 kilometers northeast of San Francisco. So there you have it. Five huge strange things moving at breakneck speed away from a young star 32 light years away. And the shadows of a lot of things, from tiny to bigger than planets, blocking light at an older star 1500 light years away. Of course, none of the reports say in which direction the huge objects launching into space from AU Microscopii are going. What if they were aimed at KIC 8462852? You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Jack Scanlon is an insect geneticist, writer and editor-in-chief of Lateral Magazine. I spoke with him at the Maker's Place Community Makerspace Meetup. I began by asking him, how does a geneticist become a magazine editor? Well, I'm not sure that genetics has anything in particular to do with it, other than that I was, I'm interested in science, so I did a, I've been doing science degrees, and uh, that led into doing science communication. I don't know, because like, my, my area is insect genetics, and that's relatively obscure, depending on who you talk to. And I think having an obscure interest in science sort of I think it maybe it hones your science communication skills because you're forced to t talk to people about something that they have no idea about. So I have to constantly tell them, like, I work with fruit flies and here's why fruit flies are vaguely interesting or why they're important. So, you know, I could answer it that way. But, you know, you, there's also just the general idea of if you're interested in science, you probably want to tell people about it. So that's kind of nurtured my interest in communication, just reading about science and hoping that other people have that same level of passion as I do. So 
and the sort of editing and writing just comes naturally out of that being a great way to communicate and particularly online these days like there's heaps of writing out there it's easy to access it's easy to easy to find easy to get to people through social media so it all sort of comes together that way and you've been involved in science communication for some time yeah i've been involved in podcasts and group blogs and stuff since about 2008 uh, which is a relatively long time i guess about seven years so yeah, I've sort of seen how the internet has changed a little bit since that time. Obviously, the internet in 2008 is pretty similar to 2015 compared to, like, the 80s. Um, but still, a lot of things have changed. Like, social media has changed a lot. Um, website design has changed a lot. Uh, podcasts are really big these days. Videos are really big. So, I guess things are changing all the time. And uh, I have some appreciation of that. So, I think, I think that's helped out, yeah. So, when did you decide on this project of Lateral Magazine? I've sort of had an idea for a while that it would be good to do a sort of polished magazine based around science. I mean, there's plenty of them around, but I wanted something that would have an angle of science and society, something that would be accessible to basically everyone, something that would have artwork um, that people would enjoy so it doesn't seem too technical, and something that also supports people who are interested in getting into science, that's kind of like a step up for them and helps them have a career in science writing. So... It sort of just it, it came about over time. I was like, oh, maybe this is a good project to do. And then about a year ago, it kind of crystallized when I found all these people that were maybe interested. And yeah, from there, I've just been working at it. And yeah, it's come along quite well, I think. And you've got another full-time job at the same time. Yeah, I work at the University of Melbourne in first-year teaching. So yeah, that's only for this year. I, I might be starting a PhD next year. So that's kind of like swapping a full-time job for another full-time job. <laughs> But we'll see how it goes. I think a PhD it will be easier to slot in editing duties around that rather than a nine-to-five job because that can be a bit constraining in terms of time. But when you're doing a PhD, you can sometimes you know, respond to an email while your experiment is running and then go off and do the experiment and then come back and stuff. So maybe it's you know, maybe a better option, even though it seems like a lot of work. What was the inspiration for the name of the magazine? That's a good question, actually, because when we were coming up with the magazine or when we were putting it together in our heads, we're thinking a name is simultaneously really important but also completely arbitrary. So the name is never really going to have any particular information in it that the audience needs to understand the magazine, but it's also often their first point of contact. So it needs to have something that represents the magazine but isn't really technical so they're not put off but you want something that means something that isn't jargon or gibberish. So I came up with lateral when I was in the middle of a, a practical class for first year biology and they were uh, teaching certain aspects of botany and they were teaching that uh, uh, there's certain types of leaves and one of them, like a gum tree's leaf, it sort of hangs down so that it can avoid direct sunlight. And it's the same on both sides rather than being different depending on which side is facing the sun or not. And that type of leaf is called an isobilateral leaf. And at the time, for about a month, we'd been going back and forth with names and we didn't really like any of them. So I was looking for a single word that had something vaguely technical or vaguely scientific about it, but didn't necessarily have a scientific connotation. And lateral sort of fit the bill because it invokes sort of lateral thinking. It invokes moving from discipline to discipline, which the magazine kind of tries to do. It tries to take science and society and put it together and see how they interact. So I think it, it's actually a really good encapsulation of what the magazine is. And it was completely by chance that we came up with it. Awesome. So what is the format of the magazine? Well, it's a completely online magazine. We don't have a print 
edition because it's prohibitively expensive. We'd like to do that in the future, but we'll see how it goes. Essentially, it's kind of like a hybrid between a traditional magazine that publishes only once every month or every couple of weeks. So we have a, a monthly theme and we publish a bunch of articles at the start of the month on that theme. And then throughout the month, we then have a number of articles that then get published like every week or every uh, half week. So there's a bunch of content coming out the, all the time, but it's sort of concentrated at the start of the month when people might want to all read it in one go, you know, over a couple of days on the train or at home after work or whatever. And what themes have you run so far? So our first issue, so we're up to issue three at the moment, we're in the middle of that for October. Our first issue was firsts, which was quite appropriate, it was the first issue. Then our second issue was on underground, and we interpreted that quite symbolically, so like underground, like underground cinema, or banned media, or underground, like physically underground. We had a a story on uh, a species of mosquito that evolved or adapted to live in the London underground. So yeah, we, we looked at that in different ways. And then our current issue is on collaboration. So that's all about how uh, science and art and music can collaborate, how different areas of science can collaborate to put people in space, and how uh, you know researchers and patients can collaborate for medical research and things like that. And our next issue in November will be on transformation. And how is the magazine funded? Because writers and artists uh, contributing to the magazine get paid, we do need money for the magazine and we have about six months worth of money saved up from a crowdfunding campaign that we ran before the magazine launched. Uh, So that was people who were interested in the idea of the magazine coming about being generous enough to give us money to start it. And we're looking at trying to find more longer term sources of funding, potentially through organisations or universities and groups that might want to support something like a magazine. And we're looking into various options at the moment. but. where we're hoping to get something on the table very soon because we're running out of money. It's not, it's not urgent, but, you know, we've got to keep that in mind as a goal. Do people subscribe to the magazine or they just go back to the website or what's the preferred model for people to read lateral? Well, it's interesting calling it a subscription because that generally for, for a magazine that implies that it costs money. Lateral is completely free to read, but you can subscribe on the website and get an email alert whenever a new issue comes out. You can also subscribe via an RSS feed that will tell you all of the articles when they come out. You can also just find us on social media and we often update and say, you know, on Twitter or Facebook, you know, this new article's come out, why don't you read it? You know, things like that. So if you're online, have an online presence at all, it's very easy to find out when the magazine has come out with new stuff. But also you could do the opposite and just go to the magazine website randomly every month or so and be surprised and delighted with what you see which maybe that works for you I don't know (laughs) and you're not just doing writing you've got artists producing amazing things for each article yeah so about half our articles have commissioned artwork for them and that's something we're quite uh, interested in promoting because one it's always fantastic to see more art that is inspired by science and it's always fantastic just to see art in general. That um, And we're, we're happy to support young artists and people that are getting started in a career in art. But also it's a good point of sort of contact for people who might not necessarily already read a lot about science. If they see a beautiful piece of artwork that they really enjoy and think is great, they might be more interested in than reading an article that's associated with it. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. Like the, the art supports the article, but also the article informs the art and 
hopefully the artist as well who does it learns something about the science as well. So I, I only see it as beneficial, really. And if people want to read or even contribute to the magazine, where should they look? Uh, well, all those links to subscribe or to contribute, they're all on our website. So that's lateralmag.com, or you can just Google Lateral Magazine, and up the top in the navigation there's things like subscribe, contribute. You can fill out a form and send us your details, and then we'll get in touch and you know, see if you want to produce some art for us or write for the magazine. Yeah, we're interested in uh, getting art or writing from people who are sort of new or sort of early in their science communication careers. So if you're, you've always been interested in writing about science but you've never found an outlet for it or you, you know, can't bother starting your own website or whatever, then get in touch and we might be able to help you with that. Well, Jack Scanlon, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Jack Scanlon talking about Lateral Magazine. You can read the magazine at lateralmag.com and hear Jack on the Pseudoscientist podcast of The Young Australian Skeptics at youngosskeptics.com slash podcast slash the-pseudoscientists. And now John August returns with a two-part tale about entropy and the egg. Entropy is about the tendency of all things towards disorder in the universe. And eggs go from being very simple to being very ordered indeed when they hatch into chicks. In part one, John will explore what entropy is. And then next week, he'll apply that understanding to how an egg can grow from relatively simple to very complex without violating the laws of thermodynamics. You may have heard how the universe increases in complexity in spite of the second law of thermodynamics. I recently became intrigued with the development of a chicken egg into a chick, and there are some connections. The egg increases in complexity with presumably a reduction in entropy. A chick egg takes 21 days on average to incubate into a live chick. But I was also wondering, why 21 and not, say, 30 days or 15 days? Now, in order to work through these ideas, I'm going to assume that you understand a bit about what cells are and how they have DNA, proteins and cell membranes, and a little bit about how chemical reactions work. I'll try to take the thermodynamics a bit more slowly so you can better appreciate the second law of thermodynamics and the issues around it. If you don't, you can try to follow along. Fingers crossed, but if it doesn't gel, please feel free to blank out and do something else till the end of this piece. Anyway, I'll be doing my best to explain it. Fingers crossed. There are the four laws of thermodynamics, though some people focus on just three of them. I'm going to try to illustrate them using a reasonably well-known gambling metaphor, but also try to say what these laws actually mean as well. The first law is, you can't win. That is, the conservation of energy. You can't get out more energy than you put in. The second law is, you can't break even. You can only increase or maintain entropy in a closed system. The third law is, you can't leave the game. You can't get to absolute zero temperature where these constraints would subside. There's the zeroth law, all are equal before the cashier. That if there's no heat exchange at equilibrium between two items, and then no heat exchange with a third one, then all three must be at the same temperature. But let's focus on the second law of thermodynamics. For a closed system, net entropy must always increase or stay constant. It can never decrease. Creationists claim that this is an obstacle to life developing naturally because life reduces entropy. However, what they forget is that this is a limit on the overall entropy. You can reduce the entropy in one region at the cost of a more than compensating increase in entropy elsewhere. The net entropy has still increased, but you've managed to reduce it in a particular region. 
But the other side of the second law is that you're talking about a closed system. If you introduce energy into the system, it is no longer a closed system. You can use that introduced energy to reduce the entropy within that system. If you're introducing energy like, say, the sun shining on our Earth, then you can reduce the entropy on the Earth. Of course, the total entropy of the universe must increase. If you make the system forever bigger, then eventually the entire universe must be one system, and the total entropy in the universe must increase. But the second law is normally thought of as the ultimate in pessimism. The universe must eventually reach a point where the whole universe has increased its entropy to a maximum, and there are no differences in temperature. That's a so-called heat death of the universe. Now, not that they're inconsistent, but I think there is a problem in naively mixing thermodynamics and cosmology. But you can see the overall picture. Given certain assumptions, the universe must eventually develop to a point of maximum entropy. But quite apart from the generation of life, the universe is developing order, galaxies, solar systems, and so forth. But no creationists are saying that this is evidence that the second law is being reversed through God's handiwork. Eventually, the second law might bite, and it might swamp out developing complexity throughout the whole universe, but it is not happening yet. In any case, focusing on life, we feed energy into a living system and it stays alive. But where does this energy come from? Well, you may think the world is running out of oil, but let me tell you, the universe is running out of hydrogen. According to the Big Bang Theory, there was a certain amount of hydrogen formed at the creation of the universe. And ever since then, the universe has been converting the hydrogen to more massive elements, up to iron, and releasing energy. It is like the universe was created with a wound-up spring, which is slowly unwinding. And at the cost of that unwinding spring, localised energy can be released into the universe, which can then be used to reduce the entropy in some parts of the universe. But what is this thing called entropy? In one sense, it is disorder in a system. Degrees of freedom. The freer particles are to move around, the more entropy you have. Water has more entropy than ice, because the molecules are free to roll over each other. Water vapour is still more entropy, because the molecules are free to meander around as a gas. So, the more solid something is, the lower its entropy, because atoms and molecules are less free to move around. And how can you reduce entropy? One way is that we pull heat out of the material to make it more solid. However, you can solidify something just not just by cooling it, but also by forming chemical bonds. It's the way glue sets. Bonds form and the glue solidifies. Or it can be how we form plastic. The original monomers, often made of a gas, are linked together and we have a plastic, also known as a polymer. So the important contrast is that, if all you're doing is feeding heat energy into something and making the molecules rattle around more vigorously, you're increasing the entropy. But if you introduce energy as bond energy, you can solidify the material and so reduce the entropy, even though you've added energy to the system. Chemical reactions can mean a change in both energy and entropy. It's the branch of chemistry which we can use to figure out whether a reaction will occur spontaneously. It involves notions like Gibbs energy. We won't be looking into this in any detail, but it's important to realise that chemical reactions have their own place in thermodynamics. The formation of chemical bonds to make something solid, or at least linear, is important to life. How does a living cell differ from its constituents? One difference is that it has more energy, in the form of bonds between molecules. We form proteins from their constituent amino acids. These proteins have more energy than the individual amino acids that comprise them. They can also be used to form structures. Keratin and collagen are proteins which form structures like shells, hair and fingernails. Calcium atoms will bond together to form bones. And then you have the DNA base pairs. 
Again, the DNA chain has a higher energy due to the bonding between the base pairs. And lipids, which behave like detergent, join together using non-covalent bonds to form the cell membrane. However, contrary to the other cases, I expect a formed cell membrane would have a lower energy than its constituent molecules. It forms naturally, and also a lower entropy. Of course, there are other low entropy molecules in nature. The difference is that life has not only low entropy, but also a structure, a structure that allows life. Low entropy is a necessary but not sufficient condition, but you sure need to be able to generate low entropy, or another way of putting it is solid or at least constrained materials. The second law of thermodynamics. People talk about it a lot, but not many people do anything about it. That was an investigation by John August into entropy. Listen next week to hear how John applies this understanding to show that eggs obey the second law of thermodynamics, even though they grow from simple to complex. A big thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his monthly donation. Please consider copying Andrew's model and making a monthly donation. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are indexed by keywords so you can easily find the subjects you'd like to focus on. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.